Please join me in welcoming to the Distinctive Voices podium, Dr. James Randerson. Thank you, Jennifer, for that very nice introduction. I'm really excited to be here. I didn't have to walk very far. Um, Earth System Science Department's just across the street. And it's a really exciting place to be. Uh, I have colleagues, we try to study the Earth as an integrated system. So I have uh, colleagues who are oceanographers, atmospheric scientists. I'm a, my focus of my lab is on the terrestrial biosphere. So there are people studying ozone, ocean biology, and we're trying to understand how the Earth is changing uh, over the course of a human lifetime. So today I'm gonna to talk to you about Western wildfires and climate change. And I'm really gonna focus on three stories uh, that have emerged from my laboratory over the last uh, several years. And so before I begin, I wanna just give credit to my colleagues in my lab. And I also work with colleagues in other institutions, including NASA. But the first story I'm gonna tell you about is led by uh, Sander Verevervich and then Liz Wiggins. And Sander was a uh, project scientist at UC Irvine and now he just recently accepted a faculty position at the Free University in Amsterdam. And Liz is a graduate student, and um, she's studying fire. She's in the middle of her thesis, and she shipped up all of her equipment for measuring fire aerosols to Fort McMurray uh, the week before the um, tragic fire occurred. And so, uh, unfortunately, um, we didn't know if her equipment survived, and we just learned this, this July that it did, but it took a long time for that community to, to um, get back on the seat, and it will take many, many years. So uh, the stories I'm going to focus on really have three science questions. So one is, how is climate change influencing wildfires in boreal forests? And I'm going to focus on work that I've conducted in Alaska and Siberia. And then the second question, moving closer to home, coming down the coast, uh, is how do summer and fall Santa Ana fires differ in their impacts uh, on our communities, and how do they have different sensitivities to climate? And then finally, for the final part of my talk, I'm going to talk about uh, what is the influence of El Nino, which we're still feeling the effects of, especially in South America, on Amazon fires. And so uh, with these questions, um, I hope to give you kind of a, an overview of, of the different types of processes and, and ways that we're, we're working on understanding how, uh, how global fires are changing. And this map actually is created using um, terabytes of remote sensing imagery from a project that I have to map out the global pattern of wildfires. And we've been measuring wildfires using NASA satellite imagery now for the last 15 years. And so we can link the, the structure of wildfires with um, uh, sea surface temperatures and changes in human activity. And it's really exciting now to be able to look at those controls in detail. So, so why do we care about fires in Alaska? And I think there are really three things that you need to know as background to understand why fires in these ecosystems are really important. Um, the first uh, is that there's a tremendous amount of carbon stored in boreal and arctic uh, ecosystems in the soil. And this is a picture from Siberia uh, from around 2003 from my colleague Sergei Zimov. He's shown here, uh, a Russian scientist at the Cherskyi Research Station. So Sergei uh, studies permafrost, and what this is a picture of, this is an eroding cliff in Siberia, and what it shows uh, is the soil, which is really dark and it's rich with organics, so there's a lot of carbon in the soil, and um, inside the soil, uh, you can also see the presence of these large ice features. And what happens every year is that in the winter, the temperatures get down to uh, a balmy minus 40 or minus 50 degrees Celsius, 
and the, the ground freezes. And as it freezes, it splits. And as it splits, then the following spring and summer, water will pour into the cracks in the ice. And then because uh, frozen water has a, um, a lower density, it expands and you get a, a split and it will, it will wedge, it will create a wedge where it will crack, water will pour in, it will refreeze, and then that will squish the soil apart and then it will split. And so you get these uh, features known as ice wedges that create this really interesting polygonal structure uh, to the soils in this area. And so there's about an atmosphere or an atmosphere and a half worth of carbon that's stored within the first meter of the soils across boreal and arctic ecosystems. And when this melts, what happens uh, is that what's left after the ice wedges, you get little mini pyramids. So it's the, it's the inverse of what this ice looks like. And so the ice had, uh, in this area had wedged apart and created these um, pyramids with the, the vertices at the top pointing down. And then what's left are these, these mounds of really organic, rich soil, and they're releasing carbon into the atmosphere. So there's a really large pool of carbon. It's currently frozen. Some of the carbon, when you look at it, it looks like it might, if you'll find a piece of a, a, a grass stem or a leaf, and say, ah, oh, that, that looks like maybe that was uh, deposited in the soil last year. And then you do a radiocarbon dating on it, and you find that it's, um, it's 10,000 years old. So the, the ice really protects the carbon well in many parts of these systems. So the second line of knowledge that you need to know to, um, as a motivator for studying fires in Alaska is that uh, climate warming is occurring there at about a rate that's uh, twice what it is at mid-latitudes. So this is a picture showing the uh, climate change uh, from what, what I plotted here is the mean temperature during the last five years from 2010 to 2015 subtracted uh, from a baseline of 1951 to 1980. And so this is a difference relative to that period of 1951 to 1980. And everywhere you see a positive uh, color is where there's been significant uh, climate warming. And so for here in Southern California, we're looking about a degree right on the coast. If you move inland, it's a little bit more. But if you move to the north, the, the temperatures exceed uh, one degree. And, um, and even in the high Arctic, they're as high as uh, at two degrees or above. And what's driving this asymmetric warming pattern is several feedbacks. One feedback is that as the, as the Earth warms from more greenhouse gases, uh, the atmosphere can hold more water vapor. And so at high latitudes, there's more water vapor and it's trapping the outgoing long-wave radiation. The other effect, other feedback, is that the ice is melting. And so there's less snow on the surface today, and there's also less sea ice. And as a result, there's more energy coming into the system, and that's contributing to higher warming rates at high latitudes than there, uh, than there is uh, at, in the tropics or in the latitudes. And um, these temperature changes that have been observed uh, are expected to continue. And this is work that I conducted with the Community Earth System Model. That's from the National Center for Atmospheric Research. And this is a study to look at some of these uh, feedbacks in the biosphere, but I just wanted to single out the plots of temperature change. And this is for a scenario uh, of us continuing uh, business as usual and not taking many steps to limit climate change. And what's shown here is the temperature change uh, difference relative to a baseline of 1850 with the temperature maybe at 2100. And so this is zero down here uh, for those of you in the back. And uh, again, we're looking at over California, maybe uh, three to six degrees Celsius of warming, and remember that you multiply that by 
1.8, almost 2 degrees to get to Fahrenheit. Um, so somewhere in order of 6 to 12 degrees Fahrenheit warming by the end of the century here. But in the Arctic, it's considerably higher. Uh, and it's up to uh, on the order of uh, 8 to uh, 10 or 12 degrees uh, Celsius. This is a really considerable amount of warming. Uh, and then uh, what was interesting about this study is that we ended up uh, extending the simulation out to 2300 and looking at what would happen if we not only burned all of the fossil fuel reserves that we have today, but we actually went into resources that we, we know that are available. And if we do that, uh, after 2300, uh, you get a tremendous amount of warming. And uh, this is why we really want to leave a lot of fossil fuels in the ground, uh, where this is now about 20 degrees Celsius of warming across the Arctic and on the order of 10 to 12 degrees Celsius warming across um, California. And so again, multiply that by two to take you roughly to Fahrenheit. That's a considerable amount of warming, and there are a lot of legacy effects that other people in my department, like um, Eric Renault and others, are looking at the, the impacts of this on ice. And so you start to get uh, a large change in Greenland, and there's a large contribution to sea level change as we move further into the future. Okay, so fires are one, they're not the only one, but they're one potential trigger for releasing this carbon uh, into the atmosphere from permafrost. And so this is a picture taken from an aircraft, one of Sergei Zimov's uh, research airplanes. And what's shown here, this area here burned recently. And up here you can see some of the forest. This is in kind of a mixed tundra uh, boreal forest area. And what you can see is that in the area where it burned uh, about two years ago, you can see this polygonal structure developing and you can see melting. So the, the fire causes more energy to be absorbed at the surface and simultaneously it takes away this really nice insulative layer. It's really uh, pleasant to, um, to take a nap in the um, boreal forest. This is a, the ground is very, it's filled with moss and it's very spongy if you can withstand the mosquitoes buzzing around you. Um, uh, but that ins that's a, a really strong insulation on this frozen carbon. And when it's removed by a fire, uh, then you can accelerate a lot of energy coming in during the summer, and that leads to uh, the melting of these ice wedges and exposure of this carbon uh, to the atmosphere. So there's potentially a feedback that's not well represented yet in the Earth system models. We're just starting to put in this biology, and there will be for the next IPCC assessment a better representation of permafrost carbon. There's a potential feedback where anthropogenic carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is causing climate warming. And this climate warming will cause uh, a release of carbon, less carbon uptake, and more carbon release from tundra and boreal forests from the melting of the permafrost. And that will contribute to more CO2, and that will lead to a positive feedback and make it much more difficult for us to stabilize our carbon dioxide levels and maintain a, um, a, a healthy uh, thermostat level for the Earth. So some of the work that Sander and Liz are doing uh, one thing that we've noted that was really uh, interesting is that there have been a number of extreme fire years in the last two years. So one is that in 2014 in the Northwest Territories, it was a, a record fire year. And so here's the Northwest Territories, and all these little dots are places there were fires. Uh, and then the timing of when the fire burned is shown here with the, with the orange, what, what season it burned in. And then in 2015, uh, Alaska had an extreme fire year. I think the third highest year of total burning and there were many, many fires across the interior. And um, on, the, on the coast of Alaska, it's very wet. There are very few fires. But in Fairbanks, uh, during the summer, it gets hot and dry. And there is uh, a, a fire season that extends from June 
in the office. So we're really interested in my lab trying to understand what's causing these extremes. Why were there two back-to-back -back extreme fire years in Boreal and North America? And so uh, another really unusual element of these fires is that a lot of the fires were occurring very close to tree lines, close to these tundra ecosystems that have a lot of carbon in the soil. And so what's shown here is the distance from tree line to tree line. So tree line is this, um, this barrier or the, um, the border between the tundra in the very far north that's bordering the Arctic Ocean and boreal forest to the south. And as you get closer to uh, the tree line, you tend to have fewer fires. Uh, and this is the mean of burning uh, during 2001 to 2015 in Northwest Territories and for Alaska for this column. Uh, and you can see that 2014 was uh, exceptional and it was pushing a lot of burning out uh, closer to tree line. And the same thing was happening in Alaska in 2015. And this is then the ignition density. So these are the number of fires on the landscape, or this is the total amount of area, the number of hectares on the surface that were burned. And you see a similar pattern where 2014 and 2015 are well above the mean and the standard deviation of our observations that we have uh, of the historical uh, fire record. And so why was there this uh, extreme and burned area? And from our analysis using lots and lots of satellite data from NASA, uh, one of the things that we've discovered is it looks like it was driven by an exceptionally high number of lightning strikes. And so we think that lightning is a driver of the increasing number of fires. And so here is the uh, extreme in the number of ignitions, and these are lightning emissions. Uh, most of these fires in Alaska are not caused by people in contrast to many of the fires here in Southern California. There are fires that are set around the roads, but those tend to go out. Um, and the ones that are uh, ignited by lightning or in remote areas, they, they let those burn. So this, um, in Alaska, there's actually an increasing trend in burned area. Um, in the Northwest Territory, there was a record, not a significant trend yet. And what this, uh, when we're able to separate the driver of this increase in burned area into a component associated with the fire size, uh, we don't see a trend in fire size. There's no significant trend in fire size. But what's unusual is that we see this increase in the number of ignitions. So the number of fires is increasing across these biomes. And when we look, when we look at this in more detail, uh, one thing that was really interesting is we find that um, there's a, when warmer and drier conditions during June, they cause a lightning-driven cascade of fire activity from year to year. And so what's shown here is that when you have a warm and hot June, which is represented by vapor pressure deficit, that's a variable that measures it's a combination of humidity and temperature. And so when you have high temperatures and low humidity, you have a high vapor pressure deficit. These are not. I think some of my other plots will show that vapor CPD. And so what we find is that when it's hot and dry uh, with the vapor pressure, you get more lightning. And the lightning records are shown here in, in black. They're actually uh, shorter than we would like. The, light, the way that lightning is measured, it's really a neat way. They, uh, they detect the electromagnetic pulse, and they have this system of, um, of different uh, detectors around Alaska and around different parts of the western U.S. And what you can do is triangulate based on the time of speed of this electromagnetic pulse to travel out from a lightning strike. And so the uh, managers can determine within about 200 meters where each lightning strike, or even 100 meters, where each lightning strike occurs. And it's such a valuable tool for understanding the ignition source um, and whether it was set by lightning or set by people, but they're always upgrading the networks. So it drives us scientists a little bit crazy because the, um, 
the, uh, the, the, time, the, the network is changing, and so it's difficult to do change detection on, on this record. But it's exciting to see that the network is getting upgraded. So anyway, there's a relationship where the, a warmer zoom drives uh, more lightning. There's a, a significant positive relationship. More lightning, we found, uh, leads to more fire ignitions. It's a very low probability that a lightning will ignite a fire, but the more, more uh, lightning strikes you have on the landscape, uh, the more uh, the more fires are going to And then the more fires that you have, that drives more burned area. And then finally, uh, there's a very, very close relationship between the area burned and the carbon that's released uh, to the atmosphere, um, and also the aerosols and the black carbon. So uh, we then conducted, we used all of this, uh, these relationships to develop a model of how uh, lightning will change in the future and what the implications will be for the fire regime. And what we project is that in the future, uh, in the period of in the middle part of the century, from 2050 to 2074, we project a 20% increase in vapor pressure deficit in June. So it's going to be warmer and a little bit drier in the Northwest Territory. It's about the same level in Alaska. This leads to um, an increase in fires, a 28% increase in fires. Uh, and uh, in Northwest Territory, 45% Alaska. That leads to more emissions, and then that leads to more burned area. So we're potentially looking at uh, an increase in burned area in the boreal forest. And also, because of climate warming and there's a nonlinear threshold of the lightning on temperature, you have to have a minimum temperature. There's uh, more, a lot more lightning in Florida than there is uh, in the Arctic. But with that warming, it gradually removes this barrier. We think that lightning will move into tundra and we'll start to see um, a lightning-rich arctic, uh, and that can potentially be a trigger for permafrost loss. So we, in the paper that we're working on this fall, uh, we're developing uh, a series of uh, mechanisms by which we think that climate change will accelerate warming, uh, temperature increases, and increases in vapor pressure deficit across boreal ecosystems. Uh, this will lead to more lightning emissions. So greater lightning emissions will lead to greater burned area. And the burned area will potentially trigger, uh, unfortunately, more loss of permafrost and more uh, greenhouse gases and black carbon that will contribute uh, in a positive feedback loop to higher temperatures. There's another element that we've looked at that's really, I think, also kind of interesting, um, counterintuitive, but there's two, or there's two elements really that are counterintuitive. One is that um, more burned area actually leads to more forests. In many parts of the tundra, um, it's very difficult for a tree seed to establish, because when a tree seed will drop onto this moss bed, it will dry out. But once the fires come through, uh, it removes this moss layer, and so the seeds can actually um, germinate in mineral soil, and they won't they won't desiccate, won't die. Uh, and so we think that the greater amount of fire will actually allow um, forests to expand into tundra. It'll push that tree line barrier, and also push into the, the tundra bottom. So that's the first part of my talk, um, in the first story from Alaska. And here's a picture of lightning uh, on the, um, in interior Alaska, and then a forest fire from last summer next to the Alaska pipeline. And um, sometimes these lightning strikes actually uh, hit a, a herd of uh, caribou. And there was a, a caribou strike in 1973 where like 58 caribou were wiped out by the um, by the lightning. And I think they, they actually caribou are. Uh, not as well suited as humans for withstanding a, a lightning strike because their feet are so far apart that you can get a voltage differential across their legs. And so it's, um, 
it's more uh, at least a higher mortality. Anyway, okay. So let's turn up closer to closer to. But it's a it's a great conundrum for uh, the geoscientists who are out there, and they see why are all these why is this sort of terribly is it dead on the on the Okay. So now turning uh, closer to home to our to our backyard. This is um, an analysis that was conducted by. Um, uh, Yufang Jin, who is a, a, a researcher in my laboratory, and then she's now uh, an assistant professor at UC Davis in their department of land, water, land, water resources. So in Southern California, as you guys know well, we have two types of fires, really. We have summer fires, and a really nice example of this would be the station fire that occurred above JPL in 2009. So it's, it's occurring during the summer when it's hot and dry, but you actually have onshore well, you have onshore winds during the summer. And so you can see that here's the plume. This is NASA uh, imagery, satellite imagery. And you can see the fire plume moving up to the north and also to the east. And then, of course, during the fall, uh, we, have, uh, we can have fire storms uh, associated with Santa Ana winds. And this was the 2007 fire storm. So you can see a lot of the smoke being transported far offshore. Several of my colleagues are really excited. We're starting a collaboration to look at how this smoke might be changing um, the biology in the ocean. There's a lot of phosphorus and nitrogen in the smoke that can be positive on the ocean surface. So one thing that was really creative that Yu Song Jin did in my laboratory is that she went back to the fire record in the state of California and she very carefully separated each fire. So before her analysis, it was really difficult to say if a fire occurred during a Santa Ana event or if it was just during these onshore conditions. And so she created an analysis where she combined the data in the state of California and where all the fire perimeters are with meteorology. So NOAA has a really nice analysis of what the meteorology, what the, what the climate and the weather is over the surface for the last 50 years. And uh, we actually did more than that. We actually downscaled the source of resolution meteorology from NOAA and tried to actually model the winds down through the canyons with a high resolution model working with Alex Paul at UCLA. And then what we did is we looked in this high-resolution set of information from Alex Paul's model. We looked in a channel that funnels winds offshore near Santa Barbara, and we made a decision. If the wind speed was greater than six meters per second and offshore, uh, at the time that the fire was ignited, the um, fire managers had compiled all the fire start dates. Then we classify that fire as being a Santa Ana fire. If the winds were less than six meters per second, uh, we would classify it as a non-Santa Ana fire. As you know, the system flips very quickly back and forth during the fall and winter uh, between an onshore and an offshore state. And, uh, and so this actually does a really nice job. This threshold we tested it does a really nice job of separating the fires into these two different uh, classes. So once we did this, we could then ask, I think, some really interesting uh, science questions, including assessing how Santa Ana fires, they have a different impact on communities. And then also, um, we were able to study how each fire type had a different sensitivity to its climate controls that, changed, that regulated its year to year variability. So, uh, what's shown here is uh, a picture of where all the Santa Ana fires occur. So, these are the Santa Ana fires here in Southern California. See a cluster uh, in uh, Santa Monica Mountains. And then you also see uh, where the non-Santa Ana fires occur that occur during the summer. And we were able to show them how their distribution is. So the summer fires, we get easily peak in uh, June, July, and August, and they drop off. And the Santa Ana fires 
Sometimes we'll get one in, in May, but really there's very little onshore or offshore flow during the summer, uh, and then we get a really large piece during the fall. And what's superimposed on this distribution of the fires, so you tend to see that the summer fires occur up higher in the mountains and further inland. And that's really uh, in part because you have a really strong gradient. What's shown in the background here is what's known as a fire weather index. It's a combination of temperature, relative humidity, and wind speed that shows the threat of um, what the weather, um, the sensitivity of what fires are to weather at that location. And so uh, during the summer, we have extreme fire weather in the desert, not expected, and there's a strong gradient where it gets uh, moister and cooler as you move towards the coast. Uh, during Santa Ana offense, all of that changes, you can see. And so you get these large wind funnels down the canyon. You get one in San Diego, uh, you get one here in Santa Ana, and then you also get them in the Santa Monica Mountains. And so uh, during the Santa Ana events, the winds are on the order of uh, five meters per second uh, 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 offshore, whereas uh, during the summer, the winds tend to be uh, much, much lower. And that changes the biodynamics. So we did an, an economic analysis of these fires. And what we found is that the Santa Ana fires and the summer fires actually burn about the same amount of area every year. So they burn about um, 37 uh, times 10 to the 3 hectares the Santa Ana fires and 41 for non-Santa Ana fires. However, the, the economic damages from them are fundamentally different. So if you look at the housing value destroyed, and we did this by looking at the number of structures that are damaged and we use census data on the um, housing value in different blocks. And we find that the Santa Ana fires uh, burn um, cause about some on the order of four to six times more damage. So here it's about a factor of uh, four to five more damage than the summer fires. And then if you look at what's the suppression investment though, how much um, resources fought fighting the fire, what's interesting is that the cost, if you average it, uh, per hectare, they're, they're about the same. There isn't this factor of four or six difference. If you look at the suppression cost per fire, it's about the same. And we think one reason for this is that the summer fires, they burn for a very long time. So it requires a lot of resource um, and many trees over a period of often weeks to, uh, to contain these fires. Whereas the Santa Ana fires, often most of the burned areas occurred over a period of two or three days. They're very fast then the wind switched, maybe a, the average Santa Ana event might last three or four days. And then once it's on shore, then the fires can be, be quickly contained. But this analysis does bring up a question about whether, um, whether the fire suppression resources are optimized, uh, and if there's a way that we can, we can further optimize them to limit damages. Another reason the Santa Ana fires are so devastating is that they're burning downhill into more populated areas, down into these canyons, like the Lagoon Canyon fire, unfortunately, that happened uh, several years ago. Okay, and then the other analysis we were able to do for Southern California fires is to look, we were able to, because we were able to separate the fires, we were able to make uh, models that were explained, that were able to explain a lot of the year-to-year -year variability in the number of fires in the burned area based on climate, how the climate uh, varies from one year to the next. If you have more Santa Ana winds, uh, and the Santa Ana, Santa Ana's are uh, drier. That's actually a very important control. So dry Santa Ana winds, I mean, we all know that they're, they're much drier during Santa Ana's, but some of them, the Santa Ana's will drop to 10% humidity, whereas other ones will be in a 20 to 30% uh, humidity range. And so the really dry ones cause more, um, are more uh, uh, productive from a, or they're more likely to, um, to trigger a fire. So we built um, a statistical model 
uh, using climate information over the 15 months leading up to the fire season for both Santa Ana fires and for the summer fires. And then we were able to take climate model output, again working with a UCLA team, uh, to project uh, what the climate's going to be like by the middle part of the century. And so what's shown here is if you compare around 2050, 2060, relative to the present, the present is shown with the black line of the distribution of number of fires, fire size, and burned area. And then using our model that combines uh, a statistical model of what explains the fires over the historical record with this future projection of climate change taken from the Earth system models, we project that burned area will increase uh, significantly uh, during the summer. We get an uh, increase in the Santa Ana fires as well in the fall, but it's not statistically significant relative to the current uh, level. But in the summer, uh, we get this increase. And what it's really driven by, in part, is um, a, a larger number of fires and also the fire size that's bigger. Actually, the fire size is a larger driver. And this is consistent with hotter and drier summer conditions. So in Southern California, from our analysis of the temperature record, the, the summer temperature has increased by about one degree Celsius significantly uh, over the last 50 years. And this creates uh, a higher vapor pressure deficit, a greater drier driver for drying out fuels. And so the fires are, are getting larger, and that's, that's a driver of what's causing this, um, this expected change by the middle part of the uh, uh, 21st century. Okay, so the third story, and then to discuss briefly, is now moving into the tropics and describing what's happening during this, uh, the El Nino that we're in the middle of. And so, um, what, from my work and using the satellite information, we're able to map out fires globally, and we can now see how the fires change from one year to the next. And so what's shown here is this record that we've compiled called the Global Fire Mission Database, and it's from 1997 to 2014. And what's shown here in the orange bands are El Nino periods. And so El Nino causes a large shift in climate around the world. Here in Southern California, it warms the, the winter. Sometimes it leads to higher precipitation. Across Indonesia, it shifts the rainfall from Indonesia and Papua New Guinea out into the middle of the Pacific. And so you get extreme drying during September, October, uh, and sometimes November. And so during the 97 El Nino, which was the strongest El Nino uh, until the 1516 event that we're in right now, um, we saw a very large increase in fires. And then also for the 2002, 4, 15, 18, And then in years where you're in La Nina, there's a lot of rain over the island during the um, dry season, very few fires. Uh, same thing goes for Southeast Asia, it's a little bit more of a needed signal. And then also for Central America. But there's this temporal evolution, a cascade during an El Nino event across the tropics. So first El Nino is affected in the first year. So we saw last fall, and I'll show you in a moment, the total amount of emissions from Indonesia. But it was, it was very high. It, um, the president of Indonesia had to uh, withdraw from his visit to the United States because of the threat to human health in the country from the smoke. Um, in October. Um, so this is occurring in October. This is then the dry season in Southeast Asia to the north is in March. So you tend to see the fires occurring there. Uh, there are above average level of fires uh, in March of 2016. Central America tends to peak in May. 
And then the southern Amazon, the southeastern Amazon, it tends to have a sensitivity during its fire season, which is in the following year. So it's actually it's ongoing right now. Uh, and so um, right now we're, uh, the, the Brazilians are in the middle of an above-average fire season. I'll describe that a little bit more, a little bit more clearly. So El Nino leads to this predictable cascade that actually has value from the perspective of uh, fire prediction. And so this is just showing you the amount of emissions that were uh, released from Ind the Indonesian fires. So the Indonesian fires also often are um, heat fires like some of the fires in Tundra and Boreal Forest. And so there's um, really flat lowlands uh, in um, the Riau province of Sumatra and across southern um, Borneo. And it rains so much that the, the soils are so waterlogged that there's very little oxygen that gets into the soil and so it builds up organic material. And so during an El Nino event, event, the water table is drained and it's also helped by people. People are putting in canals, especially for oil ponds. And so that helps the water table drop. And so uh, during an El Nino event, you get this massive relief from the peat ones. And so during the 2015, the fall of last year, the emissions to the atmosphere exceeded uh, the emissions from Japan, uh, Germany, and the countries of Indonesia in terms of their fossil fuel emissions. And this represents a net release to the atmosphere in contrast to many savanna fires where you have a regrowing vegetation afterwards. These peaks are built up over tens of thousands of years and then they're oxidized very quickly from this interaction between people on the ignition but modulated by El Nino. And so there's really, for the topics, really, they're intertwined and they, they can't be separated but there's a very strong climate control. So we've, with uh, support from the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation, we've tried to develop an early warning system uh, for fires in the Amazon. And the fires in the Amazon are sensitive, as I just described, to El Nino. And so the El Nino, when you have a warming in the mid-Pacific, uh, in the Nino 3.4 region, uh, it tends to cause drying here, and there's a whole atmospheric circulation that's shifted and you actually get drying as well over the eastern and, and central part of the Amazon. You get um, wet areas in other places of the world, like the southeastern United States, uh, but this is known as a shift in the water circulation. And the Amazon's also sensitive to the North Atlantic. And so we just had a paper published uh, last year on, on looking at this North Atlantic control on the fires in the Amazon. And what happens there is that the North Atlantic, when it's, a, when it's warmer, it pulls. It's a, there's a really large convective belt. Of, of rainfall across the tropics called the intertropical convergence zone. And when it's warmer in the North Atlantic, the warm sea surface temperatures pull that uh, intertropical convergence zone, that, that uh, precipitation belt to the north. Uh, and it also generates more hurricanes. So, um, so there's a north-south control. When the North Atlantic's warmer, you also get, and that's shown here with this, um, this is an index of the temperature in the North Atlantic, and this is an index of the temperature uh, in the Pacific. This is an oceanic Nino index, which is the three-month average of the temperatures here, and this, this is the te average temperature in the North Atlantic. So one thing that in our paper that was really fun was that, um, that we discovered is that hurricanes and fires in the Amazon are actually positively correlated. And so one of the driest years uh, in the Amazon that had uh, very large fires, so 2005, and unfortunately that was also the year of uh, Katrina. And, um, and if you look at actually a longer record, that, that holds up, and there's a very strong relationship there. And we think what's happening is that when the North Atlantic is warm, it, it fuels more, there's more energy released into the atmosphere, and more of the moisture is actually transported um, up 
to the Eastern, to Central America and to the East Coast of North America. And then when it's cooler, more of the moisture from the tropical North Atlantic makes its way down uh, across South America to the Andes, and uh, it's deposited up in the Amazon Basin. So we've built a statistical model, um, and we're able to explain a lot of the variability uh, over the last 15 years um, using a combination of temperatures in the Atlantic and the Pacific. And there's actually a lead time, because what happens in the Amazon is that um, these connections with the temperatures in the Pacific and the Atlantic, they're strongest during the wet season. So what happens is that during the wet season, it doesn't rain when you have a, a, a lot El Nino or a warm North Atlantic or a combination of two. Uh, it doesn't rain as much during the wet season. But there are no fires during the wet season. It's still, it's still wet <laughs> during the wet season, but you're not recharging the soil. And so the trees don't have enough moisture then to allow them to, to um, transpire or release moisture into the atmosphere during the following dry season. So basically the trees run out of moisture uh, during the following dry season, and that lowers the humidity uh, inside the canopy, and it allows the fires to spread more easily along the surface. And so this is a predictive statistical model, which is shown here uh, in the, for this side of data, what the observed pattern of fires, this is a satellite measure of the number of fires per unit area observed by the satellite for different, these are different states in Brazil or uh, in some cases it's a country like Peru. This is the Peruvian part of the Amazon. Uh, and so there are different states within Brazil and then also within uh, Bolivia, so important um, regions within the Amazon. And so the ob observations are shown here in black. And then our model that's using the just the sea surface temperature information uh, is shown in the, in the orange red. And so you can see that we can capture a lot of the year-to-year -year variation. And because it's dependent on the rainfall during the wet season, we can actually make a projection. So we made a projection. This is the projection from May for the fire season that we're currently in now, starting in about, um, it starts usually in the beginning of August and goes through October. So this is our forecast. And so we released this publicly in June. We discussed it with fire managers um, in the US Forest Service, Brazilian colleagues, and we, um, we shared it with the media. And we got some coverage by our, our newspapers, including um, outlets in um, Central America and South America, that this is going to be an exceptional uh, fire season. And so we're able to actually um, detect uh, um, in near real time using satellites how well our forecast is doing right now. And so this is, I just want to give you an example. So for many of, not all of the regions, but for many of the regions, they're experiencing an above average fire season. The fire season isn't complete. And this is an example from the Peruvian part of the Amazon. And so our prediction from May, for well above average, this is the, what's shown here now are the actual observations of fires from the satellite, of the thermal anomaly. And what's shown here is it's the cumulative number of fires that are detected by the satellite. And uh, each year is shown as a different line. And so um, the fire season is mostly between day of the year 200, so starting in July and ending uh, sometime uh, in um, late October uh, or November. And so uh, you can see that for the Peruvian Amazon, actually this is a very, very high fire year. And, um, we're hoping we're gonna have a conference next spring, and we're hoping that um, communities will be able to use this information for forest conservation. You can imagine that if you knew that there's going to be an extreme fire year in the Amazon based six months or nine months out from the state of El Nino and the North Atlantic, that you could take steps to limit the damages. These, 
fires, unfortunately, they kill a lot of the trees. So um, in contrast to, um, the, for example, the great uh, sequoia trees that have a very thick fire from the Amazon, because there's no um, evolved strategy for fire. Normally it's that no fire because there's no human activity. The bark is very thin. So even though the fires often are very um, weak, when they burn through the understory, they will kill many of the trees. So there are ongoing experiments in the Amazon right now to understand um, the mortality from these fires. But often you'll get a 20 to 40% mortality from a fire moving through. And then once the trees are dead, then they're not able to transpire water into the atmosphere, so it dries out that local region and it allows more fires to come in. So there's a, a positive feedback there as well. But we think that if you did have seasonal information, um, one would be that you could potentially hire more seasonal firefighters to protect some of their um, uh, indigenous reserves, like the Hindu. Uh, another step might be that you could provide incentives, incentives to landowners. Everybody is setting fires every year on their property to maintain pastures and for agriculture. In a normal year, the fires go out. They'll burn to the edge of the forest and they'll be extinguished. Uh, however, in an El Nino year, when we have a really warm North Atlantic, the fires will just keep burning through the forest and they'll keep burning for days and days and still in the trees. And so um, another possibility well, could you wait on your land management practice another year and give people incentives. So set up a fund to potentially uh, um, wait till it's a, a low fire risk year before, um, before taking steps to manage the land. Um, so um, in conclusion, and then, and then we're also, another uh, effort in my lab is to extend this globally. And so we're looking at uh, using our fire records and information from NOAA and sea surface temperatures. We've discovered what we think. This is our global fire record shown here. And then we're using some statistical models. And now we've just proposed to actually extend this with dynamical seasonal forecasting. Right? Uh, we're, we're using this information from around the world to project, um, predict fires in different regions. And we think we found hot pockets of uh, um, predictability, so to speak, uh, across uh, Asia, uh, Indonesia, Australia, um, Africa, and um, this is what I've just been showing you, this is our drifting system. But there are other places where um, you can potentially predict what the fire season is going to be three or six months in advance based on the state of the ocean and uh, the buildup of soil moisture and the influence of previous seasons um, soil moisture on fuels and, and the actual um, the structure of the fire season. So Australia is a really interesting one. Um, it's actually uh, during an El Nino event, it's a 16 month lead time. And you actually get a decrease in fires after, uh, after an El Nino event in Australia. It's because the El Nino, it, in contrast to the heat link we have, it's a tremendous amount of fuel. Many of the fires are fuel limited in Australia, so it's just the grasses that have built up over the last year. And so the El Nino lowers the rainfall so much that there's so little grass that the fires can't spread. And so it's potentially predictable with a 16-month lead time. So thank you. Um, so these are my conclusions from the talk today. Lightning is likely to increase in northern ecosystems. This may allow wildfires and forests to expand into Arctic tundra. And so I think we have to become more proactive in managing the fires and, and taking steps so it doesn't Summer and fall sand antifires have very different economic impacts. I'm hoping that my talk convinced you that, um, that they're really they're really unique and they have different fire types. And they have different sensitivity to climate. And summer fires are likely to become more prevalent in the future from a hotter and, and drier summer that we're experiencing our experience now. 
Tropical forests in Central and South America have a higher vulnerability to climate change than other tropical regions. Um, I didn't describe that as much, but there is really an asymmetry across the tropics, and uh, not only is there warming, but there are changes in the precipitation patterns, and that's what I'm currently working on in my lab with a postdoc, Dave Superman. And then a seasonal early warning system for wildfires in the Amazon may be useful for protecting forests from years with extreme drought. So thank you, and happy to take questions. Thank <laughs> you.